Case file number 5.10, Hacking in the Sky with Diamonds, Part 2. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one. The other one. Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief. What would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief. All I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. All right, so going to go down the uh, the rabbit hole of yet another talk from uh, DEFCON 2022. Uh, this one, I spent a lot of time Free content. There. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not free. <laughs> we, we, were, we had to pay to get in, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I spent a lot of time in the aerospace village this time around. Last year was kind of slimmed down. Yeah, that Google was the virtual first year. physical. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was like the first year and stuff like that. First, first year back from COVID, it mm-hmm. was the dual uh, con experience. Yeah, yeah. So this year, like they had full on uh, full on thing going. It was it was really cool. And um, uh, one guy by the name of Brandon Bailey uh, works at the Aerospace Corporation. Uh, he did a talk entitled Hunting for Spacecraft Zero Days Using Digital Twins. And so, any any guess as to what a digital twin is? Based on our pre-recorded conversation, I'm assuming it's a virtualization of the of the actual uh, spacecraft. Basically, um, he he quotes uh, Gartner as saying, "A digital twin is a digital representation of a real-world entity or system. The implementation of a digital twin is an encapsulated software object or model that mirrors a unique physical object, process, organization, person, or other abstraction." Okay, so, so this is actually. Going back to the last episode I did, just like the the sandbox election system that they built for for the red team testing. Yep, See, yep, exactly. Actually, very similar idea. Yeah, yeah. We talked on it at least a few times. I did an entire episode on spacecraft season two seasons ago. But you know, the aerospace industry is moving super fast. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. lot of new players getting into the game, and the cost actually playing the game is being lowered month after month after month for both companies, but also for you know the bad guys. Yeah, lowering that that cost to jump in and for them to be able to you know pop in and start testing to see what they can do and like you know what horrible malicious crap they can get into. A friend of mine was an aerospace engineer, uh, and he was talking to me about CubeSats like fifteen ish mm-hmm. years ago, and it was like, and like th- we should have been able to spot this trend from a while away. It's like, oh, they've democratized putting up a, a small satellite. Well, that just follow that curve down. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like CubeSats are pretty much all the rage right now. Um, yeah. I know there's a handful that I work on that are, you know, once Artemis actually launches, because it's been scrubbed twice now, but once it launches, <laughs> you know, those are going up. So um, it's extra clean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we can't keep thinking uh, that these systems are always going to be off limits and inaccessible. The 
guiding principle before was well they're in space there's no way to get to them so like ha 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 we don't really need to do any sort of security and mm-hmm. a major defense in depth component has been lacking being any sort of like cybersecurity testing when it comes to these things yeah well also the democratization of this stuff like one of the big barriers to entry was how do you make your own ground station and as mm-hmm. you democratize and standardize that stuff that the barriers to that get lower and lower yeah 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 so Brenda Bailey was talking about uh, the use of digital twins in order to basically test against spacecraft. Because right now security testing is annoyingly hard and you know it's yeah. basically low priority, if anything, uh, when mm-hmm. you compared to like functionality testing, you know, and all the uh, environmental testing and everything like that that goes on for the spacecraft. And many of the existing simulators aren't suited for having tests conducted on them. I don't know if you've ever seen a simulator like for a spacecraft, you know, it's just basically a board uh with hardware components on it connected and everything like that people go in they like you know hook up their stuff to it do their testing and whatnot it's you know not exactly conducive to a um all right let's just kind of like cart this around and do um cybersecurity testing against it over and over yeah, and over you, again and it's it's not like what we're used to in the it world especially in the virtualization cloud world where if you could build it once you can build it a million times and you could do that stuff in parallel yeah 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 alpha yeah these are built in kind of parallel with the spacecraft and then they're very unique one of a kind and don't you dare lose it or break it because you know chances are you only have one of these and obviously security testing is not a step-by-step process uh, when it comes to its methodology yeah the whole point of security testing is just kind of poking at things to see what happens which goes completely mm-hmm. against you know when you're doing functional testing and you you have it all categorized out set out and just like okay we'll test we'll test one we'll test two we'll test three like see how those go and like you know get it all yeah. set up even regimented testing even if you're doing like a structured fuzzing test you're doing each of those functional tests you know, a hundred different times, a hundred different ways in order to see how you can abuse a particular input. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so fully software-based uh, simulations, <clears throat> you know, they're obviously scalable and they can be accessible from anywhere through use, utilization of like containers and virtualization. And there is a huge need to find zero days in spacecraft before someone else does, obviously, and capitalizes on that. Yeah, actually, I think you made a point in the first uh, satellite episode about the fact that it's very difficult to change and patch things while the satellite's in orbit because making a significant change to the to the underlying operating system risks complete failure and and making it operationally inaccessible. And you can't send out a repair crew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's another uh, major thing with the simulators because you can't patch the simulator if you're not keeping it identical to the spacecraft because then you know none of your testing for your functional tests are going to work obviously so if you're unable to patch the spacecraft obviously you can't patch the simulator but if the simulator is in your your mock and on your network it is now a potential vulnerability for your entire network because it's sitting there unpatched so i've just been doing a lot of work in my professional side about containers and you know virtual machine to container stuff and the philosophy that keeps getting talked about is this idea of servers as pets versus servers as capital. I don't know if you've ever hmm. heard this analogy before. No, I haven't. But so you as a system administrator, and I know this has definitely been true for me, where every Linux box I had, every server I had, because sometimes they let me out of the Linux cage, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> was kind of unique. Mm-hmm. 
And even if I tried to build things in a regimented way, they were there would always be some drift at some point. Right, right, yeah. And then you get to the world of heavy virtualization and especially containerization. We had in the virtualization world build scripting and image copying, but the container world really turned that into into everything that happens there. Mm. And it's just like it's not Bessie, it's number 432. Right, right. But I think the crux of, at least from what I'm hearing, the crux of the problem here is like even with us as servers as pets, they're over even further on the spectrum where it's not just that each individual implementation is a little bit different, but mm-hmm. all the way back to like the beginning of the Unix world where every computer was different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think that there's a lesson in the progression of operating systems and large scale computers get you know the computer to, to, to mini computer transition i think that that's kind of the the same transition that you're getting to right now getting things in a way where you can rebuild them in a non-bespoke way yeah yeah exactly and i'm i'm seeing this firsthand like just on some of my missions i work a few different missions that are all they started like early 80s and so, like, you know, they're they're used to all physical hardware, and I've been trying to push them into virtualization and getting them to use virtualized hardware, um, testing their components. Basically, when I started the mission, they wanted, like, all physical systems, um, like, you know, everything kind of, like, brought out, set up for them and everything like that. And I was like, hey, you don't need, it's like, we can build up a server, I can put a bunch of VMs on here. And you can like, you know, use those for you know ninety percent of what you need to do. There's there's one-off cases, obviously, because some of the stuff doesn't support it. You know, if you're moving a uh, satellite array and stuff like that, like an antenna dish, mm-hmm. or at the very least to get there with with those things, you need to make an abstraction leap. Because mm-hmm. I'm assuming, like the, the the logical inference there is that a lot of their very important parts of that is direct access to the hardware. Yeah. And I think I think one major roadblock is that there's not really much push in terms of money to make a lot of these vendors go towards like virtualization or even kind of like a slight tangent here, but like um, I was talking to Brandon through text, uh, like a lot of the ground software and not even having multi-user authentication support, it's like single user, single password, everyone, you know, basically gets told the user password name and they share that amongst everyone. And until you're willing to basically say like, Hey, if you don't step up your game, we're not using your software anymore. Like you're going to just be run out of business. We're going to go over here to this vendor that is supporting this. And so either you need to, you know, come up to speed or get left in the dust. This is a microcosm of some of the stuff that, that I've argued about in the government space. Sometimes the government, the U.S. government's been good about this, and sometimes it hasn't. But they've got a ton of purchasing power that can really mm-hmm. change systems. The reason that all of the auditing systems that we had in place when PCI became a thing that people had to do mm-hmm. um, was in place, the, all the logging was already there in the databases and in the operating systems, is because of the old school NSA secure systems manual, the famous big red book that doesn't fit on any shelf, <laughs> had been written back in the 80s and i think right. it might have been started in the 70s and all of those logging points were forced in order for the nsa to say this is a this is a system that can be used for classified information like i remember 
in the late 90s, I believe it was, maybe early 2000s, Mm. one of the big pieces of news was that Windows 2000 or NT4 was finally, had finally been moved to a point where it could be B2 certified. <laughs> I mean, I'm going down a, a, a tangent on on, on great down gray bear, beard lane, but my point mm. is NASA is the 800 pound gorilla in the market. Yeah. And they're the ones with the leverage to make this happen. And going back to what I was saying early, earlier, we've already learned these lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the history of this is well known by a lot of the people that are doing some of the system stuff. They just yes. haven't made the connection that what they're doing in aerospace is an exact parallel of what happened in the IT space. And mm-hmm. we know that the aerospace industry lags by at least a decade because of all the things you have to do to make something worthy of going of, of going into space where, you, where you'll never be able to touch it again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, maybe it's about time. Maybe they're a little late on that timeline. But <laughs> like, again, this is this is not news. This is not new news. I, I mean, I, sh- no. I shouldn't go down keep going down this particular thing. But, it's just like, <laughs> but guys, it's right there. We already went through this. Yeah, yeah. It's like we, we've seen this before. And in Brandon's presentation, he was talking about um, SimSmithing, which is the process of creating software-only Sims from like the mission artifacts. You know, you're taking mm-hmm. your ICDs, your hardware manuals, all this stuff. And the goals of it, you know, they're basically just to build a complete software-only simulator, mm-hmm. reduce the cost associated to the hardware duplication, which are you know incredibly high. Yes. Uh, build reusable components that missions can use across the board. Provide a completely like sim environment for flight software verification. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can verify everything going on and make the flight software, you know, believe it's running on the normal hardware. And so, you know, obviously it has to, it has to run real ground software. You can't modify it to like, you know, be this customized out of the box um, ad hoc thing. It also needs to be able to emulate the hardware because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the <laughs> critical component of spacecraft is the hardware itself. Right. And no modifications to the, the real flight software itself. And on top of that, integrating the cyber tools, um, having the proper physics models, you know, and all of this will allow for uh, pen testing of this, this sort of thing. And we already have, you know, some of that, like the aerospace village at DEF CON hosts a lot of like the Hackasat mm-hmm. information yeah. and stuff like that. There's also like a NASA Red V Blue exercise that was done that um, uh, Brandon linked off in his presentation and a red flag 20-1 um, also, that was all about like you know red teaming, um, aerospace, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So you know, obviously, like that's incredibly important to have a lot of this pen testing stuff going on, these competitions, all this stuff, sharing this sort of knowledge amongst the community, and just kind of improving this industry as a whole. And beyond that, too, this allows for training of the mock team. You know, you can generate realistic uh, TT and C uh, telemetry tracking command data, mm-hmm. and you can use that for AI uh, research. Cool. And the DevSecOps for embedded systems can have a continuous integration pipeline, automated verification, validation, like all, all these things can kind of come about from simulating this. Yeah. Well, so the 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 DevOps, DevSecOps side of things is exactly the the stuff that I that, that I was getting to earlier, but mm-hmm. it's dependent on having a repeatable infrastructure. And I mean mm-hmm. as you're talking, I'm like, the first thing that came to mind is like, well, why don't you make the bus that everything communicates on, you know, either one of the one of the well-known buses that we have, either uh, 
what it was called Firewire, like IEEE 1394 mm-hmm. or USB. IEEE 1394 has it, its advantages over USB that are probably not worth going into, but but like right. pick something that we already have a lot of hardware for, or that we already have a lot of hardware and integration mm-hmm. and even libraries for, make that the hardware bus side of things. And then emulation becomes infinitely easier. And so does incremental testing of each hardware component needs to be connected to the right. main system. I mean, I and smarter people than me that know a lot more about hardware and satellites have already thought through this. So it's just so I, I I'm probably tr- going over ground that people have already thought of and either dismissed or are working on. <laughs> yeah. So um, there is like the the Gemsec bus um, mm-hmm. has been a thing being kind of pushed for the past maybe like seven years now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know like everything's gotta be you know on everything's gotta be able to communicate on the gemsec bus yada 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 <laughs> the issue we run into is that no one knows what that means there's still not like kind of a standard like oh you 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 actually talked about this earlier that, there, I, th- that I think so yeah i don't remember if it was on if it was on recording or not but mm-hmm. you were saying that that they've decided on the name of the standard and they've decided on things mm-hmm. around the standard but there isn't like a canonical reference implementation mm-hmm. of it I run into this a lot where, you know, they're like, well, we, we developed this thing. It works for like these five missions. Okay. This is now the standard for everything. And then they go to plug it into everything and go, oh, it doesn't work for 95% of these missions. Well, let's just kind of like try to like jam it in as hard as we can to make it work instead of kind of like revisiting the, the drawing board. And a lot of that's based on funding. Um, a lot of yeah. the, uh, like our smart card authentication, it, you know, was developed by like one mission that really needed it and then tried to push it onto everything else. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like the worst parts or some of the worst parts of open source versus, you know, large organization engineering, large mm-hmm. organization engineering. It will be like, we're going to spend forever in requirements hell and people are going to be bickering back and forth. And we might got get a system years after we were technically capable of producing it. Um, and then the yeah. open source thing is one set of people, one project had a problem that they were aiming at. Mm-hmm. And depending on who they were and what they did, they might've built a generalizable solution or a solution that was good for more than just the problem they were dealing with. But then people try and use it every which way till Sunday. And it's not always, it's not always conceptually good for other ways of using it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. I think NASA has actually, from the things that you've said, I think that there's another problem there, which is that because of the nature of a lot of the way that missions are run, a lot of the technical folks that are doing the aerospace sciencey side of things are not used to having to readapt their systems and you might have a a big trail tail dragging problem even if the system's capable of it yeah yeah a major issue is and i think i talked about this in the, the last like satellite podcast is rocket scientists are very very intelligent they're not software engineers so when they right. write stuff, it's written specifically to do certain things. Like I've I've seen like just like nested if loops like 30 deep. And then on top of that, you run into, well, this worked for mission A 10 years ago. Now we're building mission B. Well, mission B kind of kind of is the same as mission A. So let's just port everything over. Um, we don't need to update anything. We'll still use this software or even 
this software has worked for us for the past 30 years. Why would we ever need to update it? Even though with modern virtual virtualization and modern tools, we're seeing just how like CPU intensive this is. And it doesn't need to be this way. And we could refactor this code and improve it by like, you know, a huge factor. An example, you and you and, and one of the guys that you work with that, that we met up with last year, mm-hmm. um, we were talking about, it was some kind of image processing stuff. And yes. they yep. built on an FPGA array 20-ish years ago. And it's like, if you did this with GPUs, it would be massively mm-hmm. faster and better all around. And now you have a, a, a portable mechanism to do it because the, the technology leaped forward to a point the like the science behind doing it, which was cutting edge when they built those FPGA arrays, those that mm-hmm. bespoke system, is yeah, now yeah. commonplace and well developed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're not incorporating that new technology. And I know some of the other th- stuff you're talking about is this was developed using open source dependencies ten years ago, and some of these projects are no longer maintained. Yes, I got. I can't remember what exactly it was. It was one piece of software we had in one of my missions. The company. Uh, went under and did not put the code in escrow. So we were kind of like, well, shit. Like, because yeah. we had launched at that point, you know, there was a scramble yeah. and the, the contract rolled over. So I have no idea what they eventually did with that. Um, but that was, that was like, well, crap, like, you know, what can we possibly do to like, to solve this issue now? I, I should let you get on with your script because I know that I've gotten us off on a tangent, but I, but one of the things I'm, I'm going to say about, the ability to virtualize things and replicate inputs and stuff. Mm-hmm. You're getting very close to modern application development unit testing. Yes. And yep. if you have a system that is good for security testing in that way, and you mm-hmm. define it well enough, then you also have the ability to do that unit testing stuff. So if you have to replace any piece of the ground system, doing the infrastructure work to be able to virtualize and doing this parallel testing and stuff also gives you the ability to do more confident um, yep. re-engineering on the fly later on, which maybe you have to do. Yeah, yeah, and that is that is actually my next point in my outline was that this allows you to do uh, unit testing for like the actual flight software that you're working with. Great minds, same gutters. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And on you know top of that, you have a virtual lab if you're simulating a lot of the stuff, which you know we saw when during COVID, um, even though COVID is still around now. And a lot of people are still working remotely, you know, having something virtual to allow people to just remote in and do the thing, you don't really get that hiccup yeah. in terms of uh, like, you know, the workforce going on. And beyond that, too, you can test uh, failing CPUs and the flight boards uh, to ensure that your operation software is performing per requirements without actually, you know, damaging the, you know, expensive as hell uh, piece of a uh, spacecraft hardware simulator. Um, you know, $10 million compo- here, $10 million there. Sooner or later, you're talking real money. Yeah. You know, like v- VMs are, you just blow them up. If it crashes it horribly and you can't recover, cool. Just delete it. Bring it, bring up a new one, you know, catalog Oops, what you Restore did. the snapshot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take a snapshot, run your test. Oh crap. It destroyed <laughs> it. Revert. Um, and there's much better debugging capability at the system level too. When you're talking about this, you know, being able to see the processor, the system state, all that memory. That's actually a really good point about mm. the telemetry that you'll have available to you versus testing on the real hardware where they may not have any of that telemetry. You might not realize your CPU intensive 
issues until you run into an actual performance problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just like, you know, if you ever downloaded an emulator to play video games, when you're playing Battletoads and you're snapshotting certain parts of that because the game is just literal torture, um, much like that, this emulation allows you to rewind, pause at certain points, you know, like we said, like snapshot, revert back to that. Starve it for CPU so you can play it at a tenth speed. Mm-hmm. And standard uh, x86-64 binaries have a ton of options for uh, emulation, uh, simulation, execution. Embedded platform capabilities are fairly lacking in that aspect. And finding uh, zero days with the use of replay, snapshots, assembly stepping, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And also multiple uh, architecture support. Mm -hmm. And then you can have multiple VMs also running multiple systems. So you can have one just dedicated to the ground software, another one dedicated to emulating the embedded processor. Trying to remember, that's kind of how they had the, the the system set up at the aerospace village. Was they had like multiple containers all running? Like one container was running uh, CFS, one container was running. Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. Um, something that was like emulating the uh, the processor. One was doing mm -hmm. all of the physics uh, dynamics and stuff like that. Okay, and that, that was really cool to see. Um, I think one what had uh, Cosmos running, which is uh, uh, made by I think Bell Labs does that. I'm very interested in how the physics model part of it interacts with, with the rest of the system. Um, Cause I mean, obviously it's doing all the calculation for that, but mm -hmm. it has to provide a lot of environmental information to a lot of the other pieces. I'm not saying they can't do it. I just think that whatever they did to get that working is probably pretty cool. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it is. Like that stuff was beyond beyond me um when it was explaining to me but i was like all right that's cool like you know and there were multiple parts of that i was like i can use some of this in my day-to-day -day work so can a digital twin be used to actually find zero days so i would totally recommend going to uh the defcon media server and grabbing uh brandon bailey's presentation to go through like all the step-by-step -step stuff they did for testing this because i'm not going to go over that all the memory inspection and the debugging and stuff like that but in an experiment they attempted um, to build and test a model environment without source code for a flight software they were using a cfs or the uh, operating system which they were using vxworks and they were going to focus on two areas uh, the command processing by the flight software and the software hardware design uh, and defects affecting availability of the space vehicle mm -hmm. So the breakdown for their testing approach was they would just identify the interfaces, choose a testing strategy and tool. They would write test cases, run dynamic tests, and then analyze the results. And their desire was to craft a packet that could be related to spacecraft and crash the command functionality from the ground. Yeah. And so they discovered a crash condition via fuzzing and reverse engineering. And I, I think during the talk, he um, he was mentioning that he was going to show uh, some zero days they found that had been patched, and then from the previous testing, not the like the current one they did, because um, they they found more. I think like before he gave the talk, but he was like, obviously, I'm not going to show these. Um, yeah, you know. So I was talking to a friend of my wife's who's an aerospace engineer um, about some of the stuff after you did your last episode about mm -hmm. it, and, I, and uh, we're talking about like how some of these the command security stuff that does exist does, works and I, and I brought up to her denial of service is one of the first things we talk about mm -hmm. like being able to create a busy wait or just crashing the listener on a satellite in a way that that you could restore but the ground control system can't 
Yes. It allows you to ransom a satellite. Yep. Um, so like real, those are real conditions that could be exploited and are directly monetizable. And as we've learned from the half dozen plus ransomware episodes that we've done, that yeah, yeah. if you can monetize it, they will. Yeah, yeah. And they also did um, some low level testing where they targeted the uh, PPC 750 functionality and the VS, VxWorks operating system itself. Direct memory access via the spacecraft flight software, you know, obviously is dangerous. That has to be protected. They were able to send a no-op uh, followed by a magic packet to crash the processor itself. And so obviously this is important because no one attacks with a single vulnerability nowadays. Um, you know, everyone's chaining, you know, you chain vulnerabilities together. And yeah, I'll as Dan Kaminsky said in one of his talks back in like the aughts, Nobody said I only had to use one threat. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so uh, a loss of GPS uh, puts the spacecraft into a safe hold mode, which disables crypto. Uh, <laughs> GPS jamming uh, puts it into a safe and clear mode. So then you can record the unencrypted traffic, analyze and replay the traffic to confirm your ability to command the spacecraft, inject new commands via a man-in-the-middle attack. Mm-hmm. Brandon also has a paper over on the aerospace website that's linked from this presentation as well about protecting spacecraft via threat-based approach. Kind of goes into more like defense and depth methods for um, guarding this sort of thing. But yeah, that was basically a presentation like kind of in a nutshell. So it occurs to me a common thing in a lot of near future science fiction and fiction where where, where, where there are hackers is the, ha the hacker sat hacks the satellite. Mm-hmm. From the things that we've talked about this episode, the previous episode, doesn't sound like that's happening very much, but it might be ripe for happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I forget. Oh, I was talking to, to one of my buddies uh, at DEF CON, uh, the same one that you met. One of the reasons he got brought on to one of the missions was that was right after that mission had been hacked and it was being advertised as a, hey, do you want to fly a uh, spacecraft <laughs> on the web? So, yeah. And I know that, that that they figure how much maneuvering fuel to 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 carry, mm -hmm. and they they're 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 pr fairly conservative about that. But that doesn't mean that people can just screw around and. Yeah, like that. That's a major concern too. Is just that yeah, if someone gets hold of it and starts just doing random maneuvers, not even like maneuvers that throw it, you know, completely out yeah. of uh, where it should be, but just burn up the fuel. Like you've now decreased the mission life by X number of months, years. Yeah, if you just like you have two exactly opposed thrusters and you turn them both on the same rate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me prove inertia works. <laughs> Find out about new episodes of R slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.